Chapter 18. The thing that constantly amazed me about our workers was that they could have this desire to burn out for God without themselves becoming taut and tense personalities. I've wondered about the reason for this, and I think it's that the center has turned out to be just what we hoped it would be. A home, full of love, subject to spiritual discipline, heading toward the same common goal, but free. There's a release in that kind of atmosphere that can't be overestimated. It keeps us from becoming tied up in knots. It allows us to laugh. I'm glad about that. It doesn't seem likely to me that any true house of God is going to be a drab and somber place. Certainly the sinner is no place for the long of face. If it isn't a pillow fight in the girl's dorm or a short sheet in the boys, then it's sugar in the salt shaker. All the old wheezes. Of course, I have to frown about this, but no one seems to pay too much attention to me. When I come chasing up the stairs, bellowing like a director that the lights are supposed to be out, there is angelic snoring that lasts just long enough for me to get back downstairs. I would worry about this lack of respect for authority, except that discipline really takes care of itself. We keep our young people so busy that there isn't much energy left for roughhousing. After a few minutes, the fun wears thin and the snoring becomes real. Unfortunately for decorum, all the horseplay isn't confined to the college kids and teenagers. Shortly after Nikki and Gloria arrived, we began what we called Operation Ganglift. Glad Tidings Church has a retreat center in upstate New York, a farm called Hidden Valley. During the hottest weeks of summer, we asked permission to take a few of the boys from the gangs up to Hidden Valley for a breath of real air. Nikki and his wife came along. Lucky came, too. So did a dozen other boys from the center. One Friday night, Nikki and Gloria decided to go for an evening stroll before retiring. Lucky and some of the boys called me aside and asked if I'd take part in a practical joke. You know, Nikki's never been in the country, said Lucky, who was an old hand, having been in the country once before. Will you take one of these candles and come along on a joke? What are you going to do? Nothing that'll hurt anyone. We're just going bear hunting. So we took candles, lit them, and started down the same path Nikki and Gloria had taken. Pretty soon we came upon the couple on their way back to the farmhouse. What are you doing? asked Nikki. We're hunting, said Lucky. We're looking for bears. Want to see their tracks? Lucky knelt down on the path and held his candle close to the ground. There in the soft earth were a series of old cow tracks. Nikki looked close, and sure enough, he saw the mysterious unknown markings in the ground. You could just see the hackles rise on his back. He drew his wife a little closer and asked for a candle. Suddenly, Lucky stood up. What's that? He said. His voice was very low and frightened. He pointed up the path to an object that we could just make out in the moonlight. Sure enough, it looked for all the world like a bear hunched over in the dark. If I hadn't known it was an old abandoned school bell silhouetted in the eerie light, I'd have been afraid myself. This time, when we looked for Nicky, he was crouched beside his wife behind a sycamore tree. The other boys picked up stones and threw them at the bear, calling on Nicky not to be chicken and to come help him. And then suddenly, Nicky gave us all a laugh. He stepped out from behind his sycamore tree with his wife on his arm. Phooey, he said loud and clear. I've got faith. I'm going to trust God. I'm trusting him to help me run. And with that, Nicky and his wife headed back to the farmhouse, leaving us overcome with laughter. When we returned, we all got busy and made hot chocolate for Nicky and his wife. It took six cups to get the scare out of them. It surprised me that summer to discover how much of the free give and take we encountered at 416 Clinton Avenue centered on the kitchen. I think maybe God saw it too during those first long months of our work at the center that we never found a cook. We tried every system under the sun to keep ourselves fed, but the one thing that never worked out was to have a full-time cook who served the pantry. A kitchen is always the heart of a home anyhow, and a real cook has a way of chasing you out so that she can get her work done. Thus, you are chased from the heart of the home. Not so with the center, because we could never come up with a cook. The result was a wonderful, chaotic, happy mess. And to understand it, you must first understand where the food itself comes from. Like everything else at the center, we get our food by praying for it. 
This is one of the projects in which our living-in gang members take a most active role. Each day we pray for food, and the way it comes in is a vivid lesson to boys just learning about faith. People send in a ham, potato chips, fruit, vegetables, or they send in money, not earmarked for a special purpose. One day, however, the kids awoke and washed and went down to breakfast, and there wasn't anything on the table. By the time I arrived in the office from home, the center was buzzing with the problem of no food. Your prayers didn't work, I guess, this time, did they, Dave? said one of the gang boys. Lord, I said to myself, teach us a lesson in faith that will live with us forever. And aloud I said, let's make an experiment. Here we are without food for the day, right? The boy nodded his head, and the Bible says, give us this day our daily bread, right? If you say so, I laughed and glanced at Reverend Culver, who shrugged and nodded his head as if to say he'd teach the boy the Lord's Prayer. So why don't we all go into the chapel right now and pray that we either get the food for this day or money to buy the food? Before lunch, Dave, said the boy, I'm getting hungry. Before lunch, how many people do we have here? I glanced around. The number in the center was constantly shifting. On that day, we could count 25 people who would need to be fed. I figured it would cost between 30 and $35 to feed that number of people lunch and supper. Others agreed, so we went into the chapel, closed the door, and began to pray. While we're at it, Lord, said the little gang boy, would you please see to it that we don't go hungry for the rest of the summer? I looked over, mildly annoyed. It seemed to me that this was stretching things a bit, but I had to admit that it would leave us freer to work at other kinds of prayer if we didn't have to pay so much attention to such basic needs as food. One of the things about our prayer at the center is that it tends to be a bit loud. We do pray loud often, and there is a wonderful freedom in the spirit that sometimes frightens people who hear it for the first time. They may think it is uncouth without realizing that we are just expressing our true feelings before God. If we felt concerned, we say so not only with our lips, but with the tone of our prayer. And this morning we were quite concerned. While we were saying so in tones that left no doubt about how we felt, a stranger walked in. We didn't even hear when she knocked on the door of the chapel. When finally she opened the door and saw 25 of us on our knees, thanking God for the food he had given us in the past and thanking him too for the food he would be giving us somehow in this emergency, I'm sure she was sorry she had come. Excuse me, she said softly. Excuse me, she said louder. I was near her, and I heard and immediately got up. The rest of the workers and gang members kept right on with their prayer. This lady was a little hesitant about coming to the point of her visit. She kept asking questions, but I noticed that the more she found out about what we were doing, the more enthusiastic she became. Finally, she asked about the prayer session. I told her about walking in that morning to discover that we had no food in the house and about the purpose of the prayer. When did you begin this prayer? the lady asked. I figured up, oh, about an hour ago. Well, she said, that is truly extraordinary. I knew very little about your work, but an hour ago, I received a sudden impulse to do something that is completely out of character for me. I felt that I was supposed to empty my piggy bank and bring the contents to you. Now, I know the reason, she reached into her purse. She placed a white envelope on my desk with an expression of hope that it would be of some help. She thanked me for showing her our center and left. That envelope contained just over $32, exactly the amount we needed to feed ourselves for the rest of the day. And do you know, that teenager's prayer was answered too. For the rest of the summer, we never again wanted for food. Finding enough money to run the center was a matter of even greater difficulty. As the time grew closer for our young workers to go back to school, we made a reckoning of what it had cost us to run the center full swing for the summer. We were astonished at how much cash was involved. 
There were monthly mortgage payments, electric bills, and food bills, printing bills, and transportation bills. There were clothing bills for our street boys, whose clothes we often had to throw away. There were repair bills and plumbing bills and taxes. There were salaries, even the small wages we were paying our workers came to $200. The total of all of our expenses regularly ran to more than $1,000 each week. And at no time did we have more than just a few dollars in the bank. Usually our balance was less than $100. Just as fast as the money came in, we found pressing need for it. Often I've yearned for a financial situation that would allow us to breathe a little more easily. But just as often I come back to the conviction that the Lord wants us to live this way. It is one of the most demanding requirements on our faith to depend totally on God for the needs of His work. Just as soon as we have a balance in the bank, we'll stop depending on Him in the day-to-day, hour-by-hour way that we do now. Not only for our spiritual needs, but for our physical needs as well. Where does this $1,000 a week come from? A lot of it is raised by the teenagers themselves. All across the country, young boys and girls have taken on the challenge of this work. They help support it. They babysit, mow lawns, and wash cars. Hundreds and hundreds of them have pledged 50 cents a week to help other teenagers like themselves. This money comes in pennies at a time, and each penny is blessed and appreciated. Then there are individual churches across the country who have taken us as a missionary concern. Just the other day, we had a lady visiting us from Florida. She had read about the Teen Challenge Center, but the full impact of the need in this city did not strike her until we walked with her around one block and explained what she was seeing with her own eyes. Here was an alcoholic young girl. There, a male prostitute, aged 15. Here was a boy who could not break his addiction to heroin. There, a boy who was simply lonesome. When she got back to her church, she stood before the congregation and told what she had seen. Here I live in comfort, while those kids out there are starving for spiritual help. I, for one, am going to make the center my personal concern. I hope you'll join me. They need every cent they can raise. All of these sources, however, could not meet the extraordinary requirements of the center, such as the original financing of the building that had to be taken on as a crisis, handled as a crisis, and turned over to God. And now, just as we were finally underway, I knew that we were faced with a crisis again. In two weeks, the second mortgage on the home was due $15,000. I had frankly simply closed my eyes to the approaching deadline for that large payment. Certainly, I had not been putting anything aside toward its payment. We were barely scraping by as it was. August 28th, 1961 was our deadline. I knew all too well that we would have to face reality on that date. 